We'll read Psalm 95 and then, then we'll open up with prayer. Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His. For it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. As we read Psalm 95, you noted the context of Psalm 95 is worship. Um, the, the idea of lifting up in worship. When you go and you spend some time uh, reading on the context of this psalm and the meaning of this psalm, and I would encourage you, some of you may have, there's a, a little two-volume two set on the psalms by Derek Kidner. Uh, if you have that, uh, I would encourage you to go read Kidner's thoughts on this psalm. It's, it's very helpful uh, and encouraging. It'd be a good little Sunday afternoon read. Um, and he also uh, enters into thinking about how this psalm is connected to our passage in Hebrews 3 and how the Hebrews writer brings it forward. And so there's a sense in which when we read this psalm, uh, the context of it is worship. And the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 3 uh, beginning in verse 7, is bringing that forward to uh, worship in the New Covenant. Uh, he's giving a context for the Hebrew listeners that he's writing to to understand what it means to worship, and he's going to develop this idea of resting in God. Um, and as he goes forward, we need to see that there's an element of worship that's behind this uh, because he's going to think about the believer's rest here as we come up into Hebrews chapter 4 and later in Hebrews chapter 10 after he has developed the whole thinking of who Christ is in its context, he's going to, uh, to really push believers to say, don't forsake the assembly. Well, why would you not forsake the assembly? One of the main themes and, and actions of the assembly gathered is corporate worship. And so here... He's even early on kind of alluding to that theme of the importance of, of worship even in the body of Christ uh, by pulling this psalm forward into a new covenant context and saying that which was written then had its sense of understanding then, but its ultimate sense of understanding could only be seen in the new covenant. 
And so he's pulling that forward to show us fulfillment and continuing work in the context of even the whole of Scripture and here in Psalm 95. And hopefully we'll see some of that as we, as we move forward. Um, I want us to note that this idea that he has put forward in worship is in connection to the context uh, of the passage we've, uh, the passages we previously talked about in the sense of this perseverance. Notice here in verse 7, he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and we talked about that a little bit last week, he says, Today, if you hear his voice. Today, if you hear his voice. Now, it's interesting that had its context in Psalm 95. That's a direct quote from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice. And then here's the, the Hebrews writer pulling this psalm forward, and he's pulling that exact phrase, today, if you hear his voice. Here he's saying to those Hebrews writers, today, if you hear his voice in his word, if you see these truths rightly, this is what you will see and this is what you will understand and this is how you are to worship and this is what is supposed to be that which you live like and think like. He's pulling all of that forward. And if he was doing that in his day in the context of those readers immediately, it's the same for us as believers today. There's something we need to pay attention to each time we come to this passage. Today, if you hear his voice. Um, that is an ongoing reflection of perseverance of the saints. Um, one of the, the contexts of Scripture is, is to remind us that each and every day is to be a day we're persevering in the faith. Each and every day, every week, we're continuing to strive in perseverance. Um, preservation is that which God does in and of Himself through His work. Through His work of preservation, He's given us uh, the, the, the means and the tools to persevere in the faith. And there is a striving for us to hear the voice of God in His Word even in this very day. Um, it, it, it's incumbent upon us to recognize that striving forward in hearing the voice of God in His Word. And it's interesting here too. Remember, He said the Holy Spirit says, and we directed that to seeing the connection not only of the Trinity, but the sense of the Holy Spirit carrying the Word uh, born along through men. And he uses that phrase, the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. Well, notice that the Holy Spirit says that, that idea is in the present tense. So every time we read that, we're, we're, having, we're given a reckoning with the context of the word of God is given to us in this very day. And we shouldn't add to it or take away from it. We don't need new revelation. We only need to mind the revelation that's been given to us. And that's because this is what the Holy Spirit says. This scripture we have is what the Holy Spirit says. And we know that without a shout of a doubt. What some other person may stand up and say in what they say God has revealed to them, if it's not checking up with scripture, 
we might want to put that aside because we can't be for sure that's what the Holy Spirit says. But we can be for sure of this. So that gives us firm ground to move forward in our perseverance. It's interesting because, once again, he's used that word confidence in the previous verse 6, giving us an understanding that our confidence uh, and our hope is in Christ, and the hope that we have in Christ is not an esoteric hope. It's founded in what the Holy Spirit says, and what the Holy Spirit says is actually in and from the very Word of God. So it gives us a very firm place to persevere in the faith and strive forward. Uh, that ought to be comforting to us um, and encouraging to us because uh, think about it this way. Um, the present age we live in, it, it's very treacherous, isn't it? It has a lot of difficulty. There's lots of things going on around us which sometimes we don't fully understand. Uh, it's, it's, it's like the mountain climber who's climbing that most treacherous mountain. Um, and what are they doing as they're climbing? They're always looking for a firm foothold, a firm place to grab so that they know for sure that when they make that next move, it's a, it's a good move, it's a, a safe move, right? Um, I don't know if you may remember here a few years ago, uh, there was uh, one of these uh, men, he, he's called, they're called free climbers. They did a documentary on him. I don't remember his name exactly uh, at the time. And uh, I'd gone to look it up but didn't find it. So, um, But in the documentary, it goes through his life as a free climber, which means he climbs with no ropes and nothing to back him up in any way. And he's not just, you know, climbing the dirt hill out back in his yard. I mean, he's going to these major mountains to do so. Um, and so you watch this, and in a way, you're amazed. You're like, whoa. I mean, the, 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 just the raw strength of this guy. I mean, you know, his muscles are like, you know, he's just wiry strong, and he's climbing these mountains, and you're like, good grief, how in the world does he do that? But then you begin to think, man, every time he does this, He's just begging. He is tempting himself every time to die. Well, what the Word of God is offering us is the actual safety and firm hold that we need to climb the treacherous mountain. The Hebrews writer is asking us and, and his readers in the present why would you go back to things that are not a firm hold? Why would you try to strive forward without God's word in the context of the new covenant in Christ Jesus? We are in need of the old covenant and its importance is great to us and we're so thankful for what Moses did and yet at the same time, Moses doesn't give us the firm holding we need by himself we need all of these things built together and, and brought to its greatest formation in the context of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And in that firm holding, the work of the Holy Spirit has been done in giving us His Word. 
So to go forward in Christ Jesus means to go forward in the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit says. And what the Holy Spirit says is in the Word of God. And every time we are developing our understanding of Scripture, we are further understanding who the Holy Spirit is and what He does in the context of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're getting that firm holding every time we need it. Today. Today. So, He's bringing this forward. Today, if you hear His voice. For us... In the New Covenant context, this would have had a greater reality because Christ has already come and He lived perfectly and He died a sinner's death. He's saying we, th these truths ought to ring even more in our minds today if you hear His voice. But then... There is some caution. Well, firstly, we see that Israel was in an understanding of the psalm to remember the former acts of God and the former acts of Israel. As we read through this psalm, you'll see this is talking about the former acts of God and the former acts of Israel. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. This is the Spirit, God's Word being brought forward to the people. God told them what He was going to do for them. And then God says, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for 40 years. We need to note, secondly, that Israel did not trust the God who led them from captivity. Israel did not trust the God who led them from captivity. If you go back and you read what God had done for them and, and in the whole of the sense of bringing them out of captivity... What, what kind of captivity had they been under? Do what now? A hard taskmaster. They had been under a hard taskmaster. Okay. And uh, when Moses and Aaron were sent, and they were sent with the word of the Lord to Pharaoh, did Pharaoh hear the word of the Lord and become an easier taskmaster? No, he became a harder one, right? It was already hard enough, and he became a harder one. Each time God would go back to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's interesting, right? Because once God brings them out of captivity... What's the charge against the people of Israel in this context? What did the people of Israel do once they were brought out of captivity? Once God saved them from everything they were under in that captivity, once He got them to safety 
and he crushed the enemy and he led them and he told them, I will provide for you and here's how I'm going to provide. I'm even going to provide a way for you to uh, subsist physically and then I'm going to give you spiritual subsistence because on, on uh, one day out of seven, you're going to get a day of rest. And on the day before that day of rest, you're going to get all that you need to be able to gather and live on that day and you won't have to work and you can rest in me. And so I'm giving you everything you need And what did the people of Israel do over time, even though God had provided for them? They grumbled and complained. The idea of this warning here in verse 8, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, is a recognition that Israel grumbled about the work of God. Now I want you to think about that. Um, it's one thing to just grumble about something, and we, we can do that pretty easily. I'm, I can be a grumbler. Um, and I may not grumble out loud, but I'm a good grumbler and mumbler. I'll grumble beneath my breath or grumble silently to myself, uh, maybe about multiple things, the world, people around me, uh, whatever. And we may make that benign, But we need to be careful because we have to think thoughtfully about what we're doing because ultimately, if we're not careful, our grumbling can go so far that we become those who actually are grumbling against God. Because when you grumble about His work, you're grumbling against Him. Yes. Yeah, and and we're being given that warning here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Our grumbling is just as egregious. Um, Several of you told me sometimes to repeat what people say because if people are at home, they don't know or something like that. So um, Ed's saying that our grumbling is just as egregious today, and that's the context of what's happening here. This warning is being given to those people in that New Covenant context in the day of the Hebrews writer, and because there's a present tense when we're reading it, it's being called forward to us even in this day. Because if we grumble against God and against His work, ultimately we'll be those who are hardening our hearts. It says a lot about contentment, doesn't it? If you're If you're grumbling, you're not living in the kind of uh, thanksgiving that Paul talks about in his letters. Because that's an issue of contentment. And here specifically, they're discontented with what God has done. Now, I think a greater part of the, the caution here is that they're grumbling about something in the present, not taking into context the whole of what God has done. And that's important for us as believers in the new covenant. I may be living in a very difficult circumstance, 
and that particular circumstance in my present life, I might become very uh, myopic. You know, I get real focused in on that particular thing in my life or, or several things in my life, and I close in on those, and that's where my focus is, and I begin to get frustrated because in those particular things, there's not the change that I want. And then as I begin to grumble about that, I'm actually grumbling at God because God is the one who got me into that providential place and space that I'm in. And he's done that in a whole context of, of a tap tapestry of working out his providence throughout all space and time. And so I have to be very careful that my concern about a present situation doesn't turn into my grumbling about God in the context of hardening my heart toward him in all that he's done. And the Hebrews writer is reminding these Hebrew listeners because remember their, their struggle, one of their struggles, they had several, but one of their struggles in that present time was they were being persecuted. Well, how did the people of Israel feel in the context of the captivity? They felt they were being persecuted and God brought them out of it. And then as he brought them out of it, it didn't work out exactly like they thought it should. And so in turn, they forgot what God had done in bringing them out of the captivity. They began to grumble about a present circumstance and be so focused on it that they were not remembering all that God had done to bring them out of captivity from Egypt. The same for the Hebrew listener in that day is the writer is saying to them, hey, remember, you were bound into all the legalism that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rabbis had unfolded over years from taking the law of Moses out of context and how they had bound you into that and you were just completely immersed in it and entangled in it and God through Jesus Christ brought you out of it. I want you to remember, remember Moses rightly, not like he's been twisted to be and I don't want you to put him and the law of Moses in an improper place and yet at the same time remember the faithfulness of Moses. He's saying, you guys, you're going through some present persecution you're starting to turn back to an old way that's only going to give you bondage. It's a warning to us that our grumbling may lead to the hardening of our heart. They grumbled about the work of God, and the text says here, they hardened their hearts. They hardened their hearts. Yes. Yeah, no, I, 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 hope, I, I hope I pointed to that too. That's a good point. Um, yeah, and, and the hardening there is, is based on the fact 
furthermore, not only is it the hardening itself serious, but it says they tested God. Um, these are some practical cautions for us in our Christian lives. Uh, the grumbling that we do in our lives can begin to morph into a hardening of our heart and we, we become those who are testing God. God, if you love me, you'll give me what I want this way. If you say you're really protecting me, you'll give me what I want this way. If you say I'm one of your people, then this will work out this way. We're testing God. Yeah, he's given a context for them to see the gospel rightly. They're turning it backwards once again and saying, well, I can go do the law, and then I put the onus back on myself. I'm going to trust myself to go back and do the law, and I won't get persecuted because the Jewish religion of that day was, was not being persecuted in that context. So I'll go back, do these things over here, put the onus on myself, and I'll get out of some of this world trouble, even political trouble over here, and I'll live it this way. Instead of resting in the promises of who Christ is and what, what Christ did, because that's the ultimate promise that's been proclaimed to them, is what Christ has done is greater than the context of any persecution you might see momentarily. What Christ has done is greater than all that because you might endure some present persecution... I think Paul talks about that somewhere. Present troubles. Anybody remember that letter? Where is it? Corinthians? Doesn't he say some things to the church at Corinth? What does he tell the church at Corinth? These present troubles are light and momentary. You see. He's... He's, the Hebrews writer here is saying, hey, hey, whoa, 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 wait a second. You guys are actually putting yourselves back in the fire. You think you're getting out of it, but you're actually putting yourselves back in it because you're, you're walking away from the great truths of the gospel, which is an eternal truth. You've been saved from the dead and the guilt of your sin for eternity. If you go back to these other things... A, that's a works-based salvation and it saves you from nothing, right? B, it's not going to accomplish the thing you think it will accomplish. Now, I think this is interesting because it ties in to even some of our teaching on the Olivet Discourse. Um, The Hebrews letter is probably written in about mid-60s A.D. What's about 
three to seven years right down the road for the people of Israel. What? The destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. He's trying to give them something stable to hold on to to say, you don't, you're not remembering the teaching of the Lord here. Something's coming down the road. These stones, these buildings, they're not going to be standing. They're not going to be there to do the things you think they would be there to do. You're not going to be able to go to the temple court and, and buy a sacrifice and give it to the priest and all those kinds. Of, that's not going to be allowed to you. Your grumbling has turned into a hardening of your heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ himself and all that he is and all that he has done. And now you're even testing God. For the Israelites, they tested God how? All right. The golden idol. Yes. Yeah. Multiple idols, they tested him. What else? Okay, there's no water. Sandy said no meat. Beth said no water. Okay, there's all these things they wanted in a particular way and they're turning to God and complaining about it. Well, the Hebrews writer is pulling that forward and saying, if you're going to go back to the law of Moses, the way Pharisees have constructed it and Sadducees have constructed it, if you're going to go back to that, you're actually going to be testing God. Not only are you grumbling against Him, but you're testing Him. Now think about that. A smart person only tests someone. That means to go against them in a, in a bold claim against them. You only do that if you think you can win the test. If you're smart. I mean, I'm not saying I've always been smart. I'm just saying if you are smart, you're not going to go test someone unless you know you can win the test. By testing God, they're, they're testing him, saying, well, well, let's see what you can do. Let, let, let's see, God, if you'll pull us through this. Well, only the hard-hearted person tests God in that way. The person of genuine faith trusts that God will do what he says he will do. The person of faith in Christ alone trusts that Christ's person and work is enough. We don't need Christ plus anything else. We don't need to have the works of the law according to our own righteousness plus Christ. No. It's only Christ's works and His righteousness according to the law. Christ and Christ alone and that's it. He says, if you do this, you're going to be testing God. And that's not a wise thing to do. Because it's already been tried by the people of Israel and how did it go for them? Did it go well for them? And no, as a matter of fact, it didn't go well for any of them because many of them, what happened to them? 
died in the wilderness. We, we need to rehearse some of the thinking of, of, of Psalm 95 in the context of Exodus and Numbers uh, to be reminded of, of, of that in a way that we can see how the Hebrews writer is pulling that forward. Um, In, in him pulling this forward, not only have they grumbled against God, hardened their hearts to God, they've tested God in his creation and commands. But in verse 10, it says, Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart as they did not know my ways. Now, this begins a place where the Hebrews writer is setting up a distinction that's very important. And it's important because the passages we will go into in coming weeks have been misconstrued, um, have been taught in error, and there are false teachings that have come out of wrong thinking and teaching on these passages. I want you to see before we ever get into the idea of the unbelieving heart in verse 12, the Hebrews writer has already started that distinction in verse 10. And it rings true with Romans chapter 9 when Paul says, All Israel is not Israel. When he says in Galatians 16, there is the Israel of God. The Israel of God is who? And we're, we're going to close here because I'm going I'm to run out of time. All right. All right. Those who have been circumcised with the heart, regenerated, new believers. Those new believers make up uh, local churches. Make up the, the invisible church, if you want to call it that. All right? So when we see this context, he's saying in Israel there was a remnant. There were those who believed in the Messiah to come. And yet when you looked at ethnic Israel, not all ethnic Israel was the true Israel. And Paul reiterated that uh, in Romans chapter 9. He's making a distinction here. And strangely enough, we'll see a very similar distinction from Matthew chapter 25 this morning. He's making a very, very clear distinction. There are those who harden their hearts and they go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways, meaning they do not trust and believe in my ways. It's not just a blank knowledge. And those, he says in verse 11, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now he's giving an eternal context, first of all, to the rest. But that eternal context to our rest in God is worked out in space and time on the earth. But he's making a clear distinction. There are only two people on this earth. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ alone 
to save them from the debt and the guilt of their sin. And unbelievers who will not trust Christ, they continue to grumble, harden their hearts, and they test God. That's the distinction he's making. And we will continue to unfold that idea to show the Hebrews writer is not teaching that someone can lose their salvation. You are either saved or you are not saved. You are either a believer or you are not a believer. You are either a regenerate person in the Lord Jesus Christ or you are unregenerate. That's what he's teaching. Nowhere in the scripture and especially here. And matter of fact, this is a key text for many who teach you can lose your salvation when in actuality the text teaches the exact opposite. It's sad. So we'll finish there. Um, and I just wanted us to really spend some time in that section of Psalm 95 so we can begin to, to move forward. Um, I, I would ask for questions, but we're out of time. All right, let's close. Heavenly Father, you've been very gracious to give us time in your word this morning. Thank you for your kindness to us. Give us hearts to trust you and your word by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would not be a people that test you, test you in the teaching of your son, the Lord Jesus, the truth of who he is and what he's done. May we be a people that desire to enter your rest, to enter it your way according to your will and your purpose. Lord, please don't, don't let us be willful, hardened people. Give us hearts to trust in you alone. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.